I'm John Barrett Ingalls, and this is The How, The Why, presented by 1888. Every week, we connect with artists, authors, and innovators in the world of publishing and literature to discuss their creative process and creative purpose and explore the evolution of the industry. 1888 serves as a regional catalyst for the preservation, presentation, and promotion of cultural heritage and literary arts. Let's get connected. Hello and welcome to the How the Why brought to you by 1888. My name is John Barrett Ingalls and today we are connected with Seth Greenland, author of multiple books, uh, uh, screenwriter, playwright, uh, podcast host, which we love, and uh, television writer, and uh, I'm probably missing uh, a million other things that you do, but uh, we love the multi-hatted uh, multi-hyphenates on this show. Thank you so much for taking the time to join us, Seth. And thank you for that introduction. That, that was impressive. <laughs> it's it's about the more I can get out in that first bit, I, I the more I feel better about uh, the content of the show. Um, well, f- first of all, so as a, a content creator, I always love talking about the beginnings. Uh, and even like the early beginnings, like the seeds that were planted at a young age, I know you went to school as an English major, so obviously there was something that happened while you were young that inspired you, uh, and so I'm just curious what what that was. What led you down that path? Well, I started. I mean, all, all writers are great readers, generally speaking, and you know, I, I'm not one for generalizations uh, <laughs> for the most part, but that's one that I find holds to be true. And I've been a big reader since the time I was a kid. And I went to college back in the 70s, and that was around the time that film began being taken very seriously as an art form. And I took some film classes in college. You know, I'd always gone to the movies as a kid, but never really had given it too much thought. But I was exposed to certain directors in college, uh, both European and American directors. And I realized that you, somebody of a literary bent might find... Uh, a home in uh, in the movie world. And it was a bit of a miscalculation on my part because I got out of college and I went to film school at uh, NYU and got a master's degree there. And by the time I got out of there in the early 80s, Jaws and Star Wars had already happened and essentially changed the nature of the American movie business quite profoundly. And the stories that I wanted to tell uh, in in cinematic form were less and less important to movie studios who were looking at the bottom line in a more serious way than they ever had before when they realized just how much money could be made by making blockbusters. Mm -hmm. And what happened around that same time was the American indie movement really began to grow. And you had directors like Jim Jarmusch and Spike Lee, who were, I mentioned them, those were guys who were in my world because they were at NYU when I was there. But, you know, people like the Coen brothers and those those kind of movies became popular as as kind of a niche. And if you wanted to work in that area, you know, you could do it and, and, and have a career. But it was 
it was difficult financially. So, uh, you know, I made my living in Hollywood for a long time, both as a television writer and a screenwriter. And I, uh, found it creatively, uh, frustrating. I think that would be a delicate way of putting it. Sure. Yeah. And, and, and began writing, uh, began writing plays out of my frustration with Hollywood because, you know, I, I came to Hollywood to, to write these kind of movies that people just didn't seem particularly interested in making, you know, to, the, the, the films that I was interested in, you had to thread such a fine needle to make movies like that happen. And it was, you know, the odds were just horrifying. And, uh, I began, as I said, writing plays because there was a much more welcoming attitude in the theater to, if you were interested in naughty subject matter. And, and that's what interested me. And I, I did that for uh, quite a while. And then around uh, a dozen years ago, you know, having been an English major as an undergraduate, I thought, you know, I've always wanted to be a, uh, a novelist. I had developed at that point a certain degree of frustration with what was going on in the theater, because in the theater, the way it works is, you know, you write a play and it gets workshopped. And if the workshop goes well, you know, you'll get a very small production. And if the very small production goes well, you might want to, you might find yourself on the main stage if you're really lucky. And that, and that process can take five years. As, and I thought from, you know, for me, the the whole farm to table thing, <laughs> as you get older, you just don't, you, your time horizon isn't as great as it was. And I thought I want to do something where I can express what I want to express. I don't want it to take five years or 10 years to come to fruition. Uh, you know, uh, for me, in a way, the, the mountain was writing a novel and I was in my 40s and I said, you know, if you want to be a novelist now is uh, now would be a good time. And I, I wrote a book called The Bones uh, in 2004, I published it in 2005. And and since then, uh, I've I've been a novelist and my relationship with Hollywood, with the exception of a two year stint as a writer producer on uh, a show called Big Love, an HBO series. My relationship with Hollywood has involved only uh, adapting Your my books. Own books yeah. for studios and, and television channels. Well, first, let's you know say uh, rest in peace to Mr. Bill Paxton. Uh, but yeah. uh, um, yeah. a by the way, let me just take the moment to say a great guy, one of one of my favorite people ever to have worked with. And I'm not saying it because he's, because he's dead. Yeah. He was, he was straight up a great guy, just a pleasure to collaborate with. Uh, that, that's what I hear. Now, how did that world of Hollywood and, uh, I mean, I guess to, to an extent writing and plays in the East coast, how did that affect the way you write novels? Well, I guess it affected the, that's actually a really good question. It affected the way I write novels in the sense that I'm a big believer in plot, which is that, and I don't, I don't really write genre fiction. I wrote it. I wrote one of my books is, is technically, I guess you could call it a crime novel. My third novel, the angry Buddhist, but by, by and large, I'm not a writer of genre fiction. And, but I, but I love plot. I love a good story. And the way it, it affected my literary work is, uh, plot is for the most part baked into what I do. All of my books are coherent stories. And, uh, I think that's one of the reasons I've been lucky enough to, you know, have them optioned by, by movie studios. What about voice dialogue, character interaction? I mean, is, is some of that influence from, especially with the theater, it's, yeah, it's solely dependent I, I have, on the, the voice of the, each character. Yeah. I, you know, you get, 
as a screenwriter, you really need a, a, a good ear for dialogue. And as a result, I've been able to use that in my novel writing. Uh, in fact, it's something I have to, I, I, I have, it's perhaps the thing that comes easiest to me writing dialogue. And so I have to be careful not to use it as a crutch. There's a great George V. Higgins novel called the friends of Eddie Coyle. And virtually I would say 95% of it is dialogue. Hmm. It's, it's a great thing to read just as, uh, just, uh, just to see the technical achievement. But, uh, I, I try to, I try to not lean too heavily on it because it, because it does come so easily. And for me, you know, it's, it's, I, I, when I reread my stuff and I see if it's, I, I, it's cheating to me to use too much dialogue. So I, I'm conscious of of trying to keep that dial back. Let's, I want to because I'm curious, I live in Hollywood. I'm right now looking out at Capitol records from my window. Um, when you first came out here, what was, how, how did you get into that world? I mean, Everyone wants to know well, how did you how did you find your break? But I mean, you you wrote for uh, Norman Lear, like you you worked in the industry. What was it that was it just tenacious energy? Was it yeah, connections well, or? I, I came out here. I lived before. I've lived here now for twenty years. But I was I lived out here for a couple of years in the eighties when I was a young single guy before I had a family, and I had. You know, you have to write a spec script. I wrote a spec script for a show that was new at the time. I didn't. I knew two people in. Los Angeles. I, I knew Richard Belzer, who I had worked with in New York, who was, uh, this is before he became well-known as an actor, and he was a stand-up back then. I knew Richard, and I had met Norman Lear at a fundraiser. Great stand-up, by the way, too. <laughs> an, amazing, an amazing live act. Yeah, really, really a brilliant stand-up. And, uh, and I had met Norman Lear at a, uh, at a fundraiser in New York, and I came out here just, you know, having some short films that I had made in graduate school and, and didn't really know anything about spec scripts, so I kicked around here for you know, four or five months. And I talked to, you know, people who were scuffling around like I was doing. And I learned that you had to write a spec script. So I wrote a spec sitcom script and I got in touch with Norman, who, as I said, I had met when I was uh, in New York at this fundraiser. And I said, would you mind taking a look at this? And he was nice enough to look at it. And he had been, uh, he had taken at that point a hiatus. He hadn't done television for a long time and he was about to get back into television. And my timing was remarkably good. One of the few times in my life my timing has actually been good. And he hired me to do this show that he was doing with Paul Rodriguez called AKA Pablo for uh, ABC. It was the first network show about uh, an Hispanic family. And uh, I worked on it. The writing staff was Norman. He worked with a guy called Rick Mitz and a writer called Jose Rivera, who wrote The Motorcycle Diaries, a very, very well-known uh, Puerto Rican uh, playwright, also great guy. And Jose and I basically worked on the show with Norman for, you know, about uh, nine months or so. And, uh, you know, we wound up doing six episodes and they canceled us. And uh, I moved back to New York. Timing is everything. Yeah. That's a show that, like, now, which he actually, Norman has one day at a time on Netflix, which is no, focused and on it's the... and right? Yeah. Um, so... Then moving into the the play world, um, how did you get your feet wet with that? How did you get your work out there? I had because I had a screenwriting agent. I was represented by a, a big agency, and they had a theater department. And uh, you know, I wrote a play, and it got some attention. I wrote this play called Jungle Rod, and it was about the CIA's attempt to assassinate Patrice Lumumba. 
who was the first uh, democratically elected president of the Congo after the Congo became independent from Belgium. And the CIA, this is back when they were in the assassination business. And he was, you know, like like Fidel Castro, who they also, you know, tried to kill. They tried to kill Patrice Lumumba. And it was an incredible story that I, uh, you know, we don't really have time to go into here. But I remember I read an account of the story and the story was a, a lot like Macbeth. It actually involved Set, you know, an, an order to a middle management guy in the Congo who worked for the CIA, but, you know, white guy, of course, an American guy. And they said, you know, we're we're uh, we want you to kill Lumumba. We're sending a guy from Washington to help you. By the way, this is all true. And uh, the guy was horrified. He was uh, he was a government apparatchik and he was horrified at being given this order. And he told his wife, this is what the United States government wants me to do. And his wife's reaction was, this is an incredible career move. You have to do it. <laughs> yeah. and, and of course, the dynamic might sound a little familiar to you. The dynamic is Macbeth. Mm. And, and I thought, my God, this is an incredible idea for a play. And so I wrote this play called Jungle Rot. It won two major awards. It won the Kennedy Center Fund for New American Plays Award. It won the American Theater Critics Association Award. It was, you know, got a major production at the Cleveland Playhouse with this, you know, American Express Kennedy Center grant and got a lot of attention. It got anthologized in best plays of, you know, 1995, 96. And uh, and so that launched me as a playwright. And I, you know, was able to continue to do that. And I had regional theater productions and for a number of my plays. And, uh, you know, I did that until uh, I decided I wanted to switch to novels. Right. And how long did it take? for that switch to happen i mean bones was the first book um uh that you you published how long was it from i'm gonna sit and write this book to i'm holding this copy in my hand it happened really quickly actually i got again i happen to have been really lucky uh you know, I was knocking around in the, the playwriting world for 12 years and was developed the usual frustrations one has in any artistic endeavor. And I had written, uh, I'd worked on a, I was, took a staff gig on a show and uh, this is in about 2003 and that ended. And I did a, I booked myself into a screenwriting job. I sold some pitch and it was a really a, a thing for universal. And it was a, it was very indie kind of a thing. And I said, if this doesn't get made, I, I don't know if I can do this anymore. And, you know, of course, it didn't get made. And I said, <laughs> hey, I'm uh, I'm running out of time. I want to write a novel. I, it's put up or shut up. I have to do this. I'm, I'm sick of Hollywood. Mm -hmm. I'm going to take my shot. I'm going to write a novel now. And I wrote this book in uh, I, I wrote a draft of the bones in six months. I started writing it in probably January. I was done in July. I had an agent in October. He sold it in about two weeks wow. and it was published in 2005. So you do the math. Sure. It took, I guess <laughs> from, from sitting down to write it to being holding a copy in my hands was about a year and a half. That's amazing. That's incredible. Yeah, I was very, very lucky. So being somebody a New Yorker, right? You're a New Yorker at heart, but your life is here on the West Coast. And a lot of your creative life takes place here in Los Angeles as well. Yeah. Is there any uh, temptation to write a New York story? Well, I did. My fourth novel is a New York story. Okay. And so is my fifth novel, which is going to be published next year. Uh, yeah, they're both very, very much New York stories. 
and uh, but Los Angeles has kind of taken hold and 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 dug its its nails into you. Yeah, I, you know, Los Angeles is a fantastic city to write about, and it's uh, it's incredibly multi-layered, and it's gotten more complex uh, with each passing year. The Los Angeles of 2017 is remarkably different than the Los Angeles I confronted in in 1982, and so you know I suspect I'll write about it again, but. As I said, after doing, you know, I wrote two books that were set here. I did a book that was set out in the uh, in the Coachella Valley, in the Morongo Valley, you know, the Palm Springs, Joshua mm. area. And, uh, you know, I've been very much immersed in, in New York for the last two books. So I'm not sure what the next one is going to be. But actually, I have a feeling it's going to be another New York novel. Hmm. Now, how does Raiders? So I was reading through uh, Shining City and... And it was 2008, so you were working on that in 2007, but yeah. how does technology and the advancement of technology, do you find that that's a, a challenge to try to keep up? Like, I, Do you mean in terms of, well, that book is about somebody whose job gets offshore. Do you mean that kind of thing? That, the cell phone, uh, you know, just, just there, you know, we, we live, like, so much has changed technologically that uh, could change some of the events that happen. Um, I'm just yeah. so curious, because I know I've been working on this book for way too long, almost over, over a decade, and I know when I go back, I have to change everything because it's not relevant with new technology anymore. Yeah, you know, it's something, it's something that I pay attention to only insofar as I try not to, to make any missteps when I depict technology. But as you could tell from my difficulty in getting onto Skype today, <laughs> technology is not my strong point. Sure. And nor, nor is science in general, unfortunately. So, um, I, I try to skirt that as much as possible. And there's some plot devices that involve cell phones or videos of certain events that, that turn up in my books. But, but, but by and large, I'm something of a technological ignoramus. And so my, my great knowledge of technology is something I, I, you know, generally don't flaunt in my books being, sure. since it's basically completely non-existent. I just, I just try to not look like an idiot when I'm writing about it. And what about the, and maybe because of my experiences with The Shining City, but there's a salacious element. And I find I, I, it's prevalent in a lot of the things that, that I write as well. Um, and my struggle is how do I do this without feeling like I'm writing a penthouse forum letter? Yeah, it's a tr it's a tricky thing. I mean, my The Shining City, the novel you name checked, uh, kind of came out of that impulse in the sense that you know we should say it's about a guy who uh, finds himself uh, accidentally running a ring of call girls when mm. his factory job gets off sourced uh, or offshore to uh, outsourced and offshore, whatever the verb is, to to China. So kind of an everyman finding himself in the middle of uh, the Los Angeles flesh pots. And the way that novel came about is that I, I would drive my kids to school. They were very, you know, they were young kids at that time. And we would be driving down the street and there would be these massive billboards for strip clubs with, you know, women spread eagle mm -hmm. wearing clothes. And, and I was wondering, you know, how my, my young kids processed that kind of imagery. And I'm, I'm not a prude by any means, but, but I wondered what effect it had on, uh, youngsters and just the idea that it was 
that that kind of easy sexuality was so omnipresent and so available in Los Angeles and uh, or the back page of the LA Weekly or yeah. exactly exactly and then you know what what kind of effect it had on what are the effect what, what were the effects of that kind of environment on you know people just kind of leading ordinary lives sure and um and the book was an exploration of that really and it's a you know it's a challenge uh raising kids in in that kind of an environment and there are scenes in that book uh that are that could be interpreted as kind of salacious but uh the book i also should say is a uh it's I, I hope that it didn't get it's about it, what could be a very dark subject. And what I was trying to the line I was trying to walk was to not veer into uh, not make it too dark. And sure. I, I, I hope that it succeeded. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. No. And I, I, I mean, salacious probably is the wrong uh, term, but, uh, you know, definitely the works that I'm doing, like embracing the there is a rawness to sexuality, especially where you're dealing with certain groups of people like call girls or, you know, whatever, what have you, uh, and, and writing it in a respectful way without being too, uh, which I think that you, you've accomplished without being too overt and too, I don't know. (laughs) I don't, I don't even know how to, describe it but i think that you've done a great job with that so that's my question of of how do you straddle that line well for me the the book was so much about the frustration of the guy the central character this middle class guy who was getting squeezed economically and that's really what the book was about right and dealing with his frustrations in his marriage you know his frustration in losing his job and how emasculating that is and then what happened to him when he found himself in in this role, which is, you know, is, is some, is something of an exploitive role to, sure. to a degree. And so there were a lot of complex things going on. And I was exploring those kind of themes. And, you know, sex was an obvious part of it. But, you know, it's funny because the, the cover of the novel, I think, promises something that perhaps is more salacious than what's actually in there. Right. Yeah. Which, I mean, the, the, the book we should also probably say is, you know, it's not unfunny. As no, well, yeah, you know? it's really funny, and and so I, I was just trying to get at these these to kind of weave all these threads together, actually, and I in in, in and the ultimate idea is to tell an interesting and complicated story, and you know I, I hope it succeeded. Oh no, absolutely no, it's it was a lot of fun to read. Um, I also have to say too, like you know, it's probably my own perverse brain, but what got me to read that was, um, <laughs> there's some of the videos that you use as your advertisement. Oh yeah. Uh, it was, Oh, I'll read this for research, you know, uh, <laughs> but I was thoroughly, thoroughly entertained with it. Thank you. Um, now you also are the host of the Los Angeles Review of Books Radio Hour. You host that with, uh, co-host that with Tom Lutz and uh, Lori Weiner. How did that come about? How did you, how did you get in with the Los Angeles Review of Books family? Well, Tom is an old friend of mine, and we should also say we, the three of us, did that for a year and a half, from February of 2015 until uh, this past uh, November. Oh, so and- is this no longer? That's correct. There, okay. are two, there are two other hosts who have replaced us now. We did 60 shows and decided it was a good time to hang up our spurs. 
Um, but I got into that because Tom was uh, an old friend of mine from out here, and you know, I've known him 20 years. And he asked if uh, I would be interested in doing a radio show. And uh, you know, I've always been a, a bit of a ham. And uh, I thought, geez, this is a great way to you know get me out of my office. I'm always looking for excuses to get out and do other things. And uh, it was a fantastic opportunity. And it's how I met uh, your colleague, Ryan Gaddis, mm -hmm. because we talked to him about his terrific book on our uh, podcast slash radio show. But it was nothing more than that. We were just friends. And, you know, Tom is the founder and had the wherewithal to get a, a radio show up and running. And uh, it was just, it was a fun opportunity. Oh, that's great. And you definitely have a, uh, a great voice for radio. Oh, thanks. Uh, it was addictive to listen to. Um, is there any potential for you to do something similar to that in the future? Yeah, I would not rule it out. I mean, I basically stopped doing it because I was in the process of finishing a novel and it was very hard to take time away from writing because as you know to prepare for these things you know you need to read the work mm -hmm. and you need to come familiar with the writer and uh it it began to take a lot of time because I took it very seriously and uh you know there are only a certain amount of hours in each day that I can actually concentrate and I needed them really to uh to get this book finished and this but, is uh when when is the next book coming out about a year. Okay. Yeah. So the spring of 2018. Um, so now working with Los Angeles review of books and living in this city uh, and writing about this city, do you see this Los Angeles, LA? I mean, obviously we're the entertainment capital of the world, but we've always kind of been secondary to New York when it comes to publishing and, and literature. Do you see that as changing and growing here? Yeah, it's it's changing very much. Uh, you know, even 15 years ago, there was barely uh, a, a you know we there was a this is this is a tricky thing to to really uh, speak about because it's hard it's hard for me to pinpoint exactly when things shifted. But I'll say when I moved out here uh, in 19. 97 and there was no real sense of uh, a significant literary community in Los Angeles and in the 20 years I've been living out here it's changed profoundly yeah. and you know you look at the uh, the Los Angeles Times Festival of Books every year for example and it's it's a madhouse oh yeah there. and there are there are all these new publishers now who are publishing you know both fiction and nonfiction there's a a very lively and active community of writers out here again both novelists and and writers of nonfiction and it's a uh, it's become an incredibly vibrant literary city at this point without uh, without much of an inferiority complex anymore I would it, also and it makes sense too I mean you I feel like not unlike yourself, there's a lot of talented writers out here who came out here maybe for, <laughs> with the specific notion of, of writing and selling that screenplay or working on the TV show, but uh, you don't need a production company. You don't need to get that, that green light on your script to sit down and, and write a novel. Yeah, and you know, there's a really interesting phenomenon right now because uh, you're probably too young to remember this, but uh, 
for the first several years of my career, everybody you knew was writing a screenplay. And, you know, you would go to the dry cleaner and he would ask you, uh, you know, would you mind reading my script? You know, everybody and his mother was writing a screenplay. Have you noticed now how many people are writing novels? Mm. How many people who, who are not really writers, perhaps, are writing novels? And how many people who've been making a living as screenwriters now are taking a crack at writing novels as well? It's a fascinating thing. I wish there were that many readers for all these people who are writing Oh, absolutely. Novels. I mean, that's the biggest challenge now is finding your reader. Well, it's I mean, I think like the, the uh, NaNoWriMo, you know, the national, I don't even know, can't remember what the, all the letters stand for, but that month of uh, novel writing is No, exactly. Exactly. Huge. Like sport. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I don't know if that means that it's becoming oversaturated and the quality, you know, I, it's funny, I interview musicians, we talk about SoundCloud and how easy it is for musicians now to get their music out there and to make music and same with YouTube and other things for, for, for video makers and filmmakers. But with that oversaturation, does that kind of lower the quality of what's out there in the world? Well, it does in the sense that it makes the pool wider and shallower. So I think perhaps you have to look a little harder to find good stuff. And it's an interesting uh, thing as well, because it points to the the importance of gate pe- gatekeepers in mm. a sense, who, who I think have taken a, a beating lately. But the fact is uh, they perform a, a, a pretty valuable function, actually, and that they're pretty well qualified to determine – you know, what's uh, what is of interest, which isn't to say everything of interest gets their attention. I think there are certain authors, perhaps, who've had a hard time getting published who do deserve to get published. And it's uh, so it's a tricky thing. But uh, one of the things that the Internet has done and it's it's I mean, it's it's really uh, done this to the music business, as you were just alluding. It's made it's so flat in the field. Mm. It's uh, it's very hard to get your uh, to get your work heard. My son is a musician just out of college, and he's uh, facing that now. It's a uh, it's a whole new landscape. I mean, the internet has really kind of fucked everything. Yeah, and at the same time, I, I interviewed this guy for a magazine, this young uh, hip hop artist who released a song on SoundCloud, and because he didn't have to go through the gatekeeper, and he did it himself, and somehow surreptitiously. His song ended up in the right hands and then he was nominated for, you know, made an album and was nominated for a Grammy. So it also does offer that that kind of uh, uh, freedom to get your work produced. You know, I, I have the conversation of, oh, man, if I was if all of this existed when I was, you know, 18, 19 and running around with my camcorder or, you know, but who knows, who knows what that would have been like. I, th- I think the fact the fact that it's available. I mean, I say the internet has fucked everything, but by the, but that's obviously totally reductive. The f- the fact that artists can now get their work out there. There's a means of disseminating work that just did not exist when yeah. I was out, and I'm, it's I'm frankly quite envious of the ability these people have to to do it. I mean, you know, I'm established now, but it, but I had to go through all these traditional you know avenues and do certain things that, uh, you know, these people can completely avoid and it's, uh, more power to them. You know, for example, there was a film called Tangerine that was made a mm-hmm. year or two ago, a, a terrific movie. And they shot the whole thing on an iPhone. Right. And you know, their budget was probably what you have in your wallet. And it was remarkable. The film was terrific. And the fact they shot it on an iPhone made it a great story. And, uh, it, it got a lot of attention 
largely due to the internet, I think. Yeah. And that's a fantastic thing. Or look at the people who are doing um, that series. It's an HBO series now, High Maintenance. But, you know, oh, I yeah. thought somebody told me about it on YouTube. And I watched it and I thought, God, this is incredible. Right. You know, they're making these episodes for a nickel. And here it is on YouTube. They're fantastically talented. And more power to these people. You know, I did a, I produced a movie a couple of years ago. And Ben Sinclair, who's the guy, he's the dealer in High Maintenance, was in Great. the movie. Produced, yeah. And a, lovely guy and i'm just thrilled for him and to see him have this kind of success is great because he's super talented yeah that's a fun show oh, <laughs> and he's terrific. great too and he's great because he's not you know even though it's he kind of directs where you're going he's he's more of a a set piece than the the center of the sort of some episodes Absolutely. he is but it's so it's so elegantly done yeah you know i i've i've real real uh respect for he and his partner who do who he does the show with do you have any, is there any temptation to put back on the Hollywood hat and uh, make something, write something or, or try to produce something? Or is it it's solely more in the literature field these days? Well, I produced, I produced a film that was out earlier, uh, or I should say late in 2016, called No Pay Nudity. I executive produced that with, uh, that it starred Gabriel Byrne and Nathan Lane. Mm. Uh, so yeah, I get involved in things and in terms of, uh, my own work, I didn't write that. I should say that was written by somebody, uh, named Ethan Sandler. Uh, but I, yeah, of course I, you know, I sell all my books have been sold to, uh, Hollywood and, you know, I've always written the adaptations and, uh, I keep my fingers crossed that, one of them might become a film or a television series, and were a television series to arise out of one of them, I suspect I would work on that series. Well, I would love to see The Shining City as a uh, TV series. I think that that could be like like a Weeds type show uh, and super funny with great characters. Um, but Seth, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. John Barrett, this was a pleasure. Thank you for Absolutely. Uh, the opportunity. This has been The How, The Why with John Barrett Ingalls. The show is produced by Kevin Stanek and yours truly with production assistance by Sarah Becker. The How, The Why theme music was composed and performed by Dan Record. Please consider supporting 1888 and our mission. Become an 1888 advocate by purchasing our books, participating in our programs, and pledging today. For more information, visit 1888.center. That's 1888.center. I want to remind you all to keep making art. Thank you.